Now we're going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my daddy and what does he do? Money, 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 money. Money, 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 money. money. She said, she, you know, she was really concerned. I wasn't paying attention. She didn't know what to do. I used to tell people that I semi-retired, but the truth is now that I'm 50 years old, I was forced out of that job. And her uncle said, you know, don't worry, this kid, everything's always gone his way. I can't wait to see what happens with his back against the wall. If you're one of those people that say, oh, when I graduate law school, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I buy my first house, I'll be happy. When I make my first million dollars, I'll be happy. That attachment will never make you happy. Hi, this is Dave Meltzer, CEO of Sports One Marketing. We are located in Irvine, California. My career basically went from technology where I was Samsung's first CEO of their phone division to Lee Steinberg, the most notable sports agent, where I met Warren Moon and spun off our company, Sports One Marketing. Warren Moon, could you explain who he is? Absolutely. Warren Moon is the first African-American Hall of Fame quarterback, both in the American Pro Football Hall of Fame as well as the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Okay. Actually, I did not know about the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, so that's a fun fact. But how'd y'all get hooked up? How'd you meet him? Warren was a client and a partner at Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment. Most people know Lee from the movie Jerry Maguire, the most notable sports agency in the world. He was my partner. And about eight years ago, we spun off our own sports marketing company. So eight years ago, we're putting you back at about 2010 is when you started your sports marketing company? Correct. Okay. And is that still the same one you're at today? Uh-huh. Exact same. Okay. Give us a little bit more detailed rundown on what you did there. Absolutely. At Sports One Marketing, we don't represent celebrities, athletes, entertainers. What we decided to do was bring all of the celebrities, athletes, entertainers, the inner inner circle of sports and entertainment to different projects, specifically to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. Everything has to have a charitable component to it. So we bring all of those celebrities, athletes, entertainers, media, high net wealth individuals, all the sponsors, the activations, the product placement for movies and TV. We bring all of those to the biggest projects in the world, like the Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, Masters, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, all the award shows like the ESPYs, Emmys, Oscars, Grammys. We also aggregate smaller events. So we work with over 5,700 charitable golf tournaments and galas and fashion shows, things like that, all specifically, like I said, to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. Do you consider yourself like sports agents or no? I want to make sure that we have more of a distinction when people think of like Drew Rosenhaus, I guess, or something versus y'all. Correct. So I used to be a sports agent like Drew Rosenhaus, but today we are more on the marketing side. So we deal in the sponsorship, the charitable components. We also are in the media side of things, amplifying content, perpetuating it with short form content, as well as a variety of other media projects. And we have a variety of corporate clients that we represent more than individual athletes. You being a sports agent, I've always been curious on what that lifestyle was like. Can you talk about maybe doing that? I've always just been curious. Are you working 24-7? What's it like dealing with athletes? Just give us a little rundown on that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a different role and responsibility in being a sports agent. There is a lot of hand-holding, cutthroat, competitive, scarce business that's hyper-competitive. And actually, it's not as financially rewarding as most people would think to be a sports agent. So Warren and I kind of created a niche business by maximizing the direct path to revenue, understanding how corporations who hold the dollars give those dollars to the athletes, to the teams, leagues, organizations, the events, 
and really understanding how we can create this direct path to revenue and then maximize potential. Yeah, I understand that's what your company does more today. And that seems smart. You're trying to find the dollars. It seemed like maybe it was more in the marketing with the bigger companies. But when you were personally a sports agent, could you just walk us down what a day in the life was like before you started Sports One Marketing? Yeah, absolutely. So as a sports agent, there is a lot of number one recruitment. So you're constantly recruiting, meeting with families, what I call the spheres of influence, Mm -hmm. not necessarily directly talking to athletes, but to their coaches, their family member, their friends, trying to build recognition and awareness of their family and friends, these spheres of influence so that you can utilize and leverage those relationships when the decision-making process happens for new clients. And then you also have to manage and develop a vision for your current clients while you're under the pressure to continually get new clients. That is the hand-holding. Your daily activities are really putting out fires for your current clients, which could consume contract negotiations, endorsements, sponsorship, appearances, signings, speaking engagement, book deals, movie deals. And it is a very high-pressured 24-hour-a-day business that can range from huge opportunities all the way to babysitting opportunities, managing PR difficulties that may occur by getting in front of different mistakes that young athletes have made or make in their daily activity and lives. And then also just you can be their father, their best friend, their confidant. An agent is truly the probably closest relationship an athlete has. And it's one that has the most trust. So A lot of times it deals with personal issues and financial issues, and it's a consistent and persistent pressure to build a legacy for these individual athletes that will help them transcend past their playing days to off-the-field activities when they're done. A good agent will take accountability not only for maximizing their potential while they're playing, but securing their future when they're finished and playing. Because about 75% of, for example, NFL players are bankrupt within two and a half years after they're done playing. What, the average NFL athlete only has like three years in the league as well? Correct. Yeah, something of that nature. So that seems like a pretty strenuous lifestyle as far as, because you have so many different roles. And I guess it just depends on each client to client. One could be more of just the contract negotiations where another one you find out is more of the handholding and you have to do a lot of things, right? Absolutely. And it is varied by client by client. And representing players is different than representing coaches, for example. I'm a big fan of representing coaches because they need a lot less babysitting. Uh, They have a lot more education and experience and situational knowledge. They can make decisions quicker. They don't rely on their circles or spheres of influence to help them make decisions so you get quicker decisions. But yes, it's a very exciting and fun and active, a lot of travels involved, but it is a 24-7 job that requires a lot of focus and a lot of energy. All right. That sounds good. And probably get into some more stories of that and you grow in sports one marketing, but if it's okay with you, why don't we kind of reel it back to where you went to school and how you got to where you are today? Because it sounds like sports one marketing was in 2010 when it started, but obviously you've had a journey between graduating and where you are now. Yeah. I went to college to play football, believe it or not. And I thought I'd be a professional football player, even though I'm at that time I was five foot seven and 157 pounds. I went to a school called Occidental College highly academic, small liberal arts school. It's one of the few schools that would let me play football and baseball at the same time. I wasn't highly recruited for football. And so I went there. My dream was to be a doctor if I wasn't going to be a professional football player. And I quickly learned as I visited my brother my freshman year, who was doing his residency at UCLA. I went to go visit him and I said, hey man, I hate hospitals. (laughs) He's like, 
I visited him in the hospital. He goes, are you kidding? You're pre-med and you hate hospitals? And that's when I learned a very valuable lesson to be more interested than interesting, he said. He goes, Dave, you've got to be more interested than interesting. And I quickly changed my vision to wanting to be a lawyer. And knowing as I played football in college that I wasn't going to play in the NFL, I quickly studied hard and I went to Tulane Law School in New Orleans, uh, specifically because they offered both common and civil law. I saw back in the early 90s when I went to law school that the world was opening up and that if I could learn both civil and common law, that I could have a great international practice, either in oil and gas. Maritime law was one of the specialties at Tulane or just a corporate litigator internationally. When I graduated law school, I had two choices. One was to be oil and gas litigator. The other was to work in the internet, selling legal research online for a company called West Publishing. They had created West Law, which had taken all the case law and statutes and secondary legal materials and put them online. And this was back when it was DOS and Netscape in the early 90s. Of course, I went to my trusted advisor, my mom, and asked, what should I do? Take the litigation job or work in the internet selling legal research? And instantly she said, definitely be a corporate litigator, be a real lawyer, because this internet thing is going to be a fad. (laughs) Second piece of advice that I give people is just because someone loves you doesn't mean they give you good advice. So it's the first time I ever went against my mother's advice and realized that a second grade teacher probably didn't know too much about the internet. Fortunately for me, the internet was not a fad. With nine months, I was a millionaire. My dream was to be rich because I grew up with a single mom and six kids. And I grew up really happy, but the only time there was any uncomfortable or unhappy situations in my family revolved around money, not being able to fix a car or dishwasher or not being able to send me to summer camp or worried about all six of us were going to go to college or law school. So I became a millionaire. I bought my mom a house and a car. Oh, but yeah, before we start jumping in there, because this seems like a crucial point. Within nine months, you had gone from law school. I assume you were in debt, right? Yeah, hundred grand in law school loans, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about these nine months. That seems kind of transformative as far as where you were financially and your whole mindset. Yeah, I had one focus when I went to work, and that was to make a lot of money. And I wasn't married. I had no children. I had a traveling job. I covered the Southeast, so I got on an airplane almost every day. I worked almost every hour of the day. I either was going on meetings or planning for the next day so I could efficiently spend the most time and make the most money. I was the number one sales rep in a multi-billion dollar company. And I used to think it was because I was a really great salesperson. The truth is it wasn't. It was more that I had no other distractions. You know, I started realizing that the other salespeople there were all over 50 with families and had been living and selling books for years and did have the same consistent kind of everyday persistent without quit pursuit of their potential. I literally worked, I think about 18 to 20 hours a day, six days a week. My job had a salary plus commissions and they actually had to change the commission plan six months into it because I was making too much money. I had outsold everybody three to one. So I was laser focused and it was really a transformative experience, but I was very money motivated. Everything revolved around how much money I could make. And what were you specifically selling? And can you tell us the company just so we can envision ourselves like doing it and where you are? It was called West Publishing. They were the world's largest legal publisher. You can see their books still on TV today. They have the little keys behind every law show in the world. They put them online. And so they had CD-ROM and online access. There was many ROIs that were included for everything from law firms, big, medium, and small, 
to government agencies, to even prisons, because of the Human Rights Act, they have to provide legal research to them. So it literally was, I believe, inception of the internet. It was the most profitable internet company in the early 90s. And it proved to be so because we were purchased by Thomson Reuters in 1995 for $3.4 billion. That's when that was a lot of money. A billion dollars was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money today. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we know a little bit more about the company, what specifically, who would you talk to and what would you sell and like how much would you make? Because being able to generate a million dollars in nine months is pretty quick. Have you ever read four books in one day? And no, children's books don't count. With Blinkist, you can get the key insights of the best nonfiction books in less than 15 minutes. So that's more like 50 books in a day. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere, and they do mean anywhere. My personal recommendation is to check out some of the classic business books that you always wanted to read, but never had the time to, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. Right now, For a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash millionaire to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash millionaire to start your seven-day free trial and you can cancel at any time. Blinkist.com slash millionaire. Yeah, I talked to law firms, mostly managing partners or bigger firms had actually lawyers that were just COOs really. And I would sell to a large law firm. It could be up to 500 to a million dollar deal for Westlaw, all the way down to a small law firm could be as little as $1,400. We had bonuses and commissions. We could make upwards of 25% of the revenue. And they were selling an annuity. So, you know, if you have a deal that's 500000 a year, they may pay you 125000 on that deal, but they get years through 50. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. They had an annuitized revenue. So they were really trying to buy the market and get market share and convert people over to the internet. When we first started, they had Boolean language searching. And then we were the first company to actually have natural language. They did two weeks of training just for antitrust law because I believe that we had a monopoly. (laughs) I mean, people had to have the cases and codes. In some state, we were the only official reporter. So it literally was just converting people from expensive, hard to -to up-to-date books into very efficient way to do legal research. As we know today, research is easily done on the computer compared to the books. Were you just making a list of all these law firms to go to or because it seems like this laser oh, focus easier than that. Sorry. Yeah, they had every law firm they were already clients of West, right? They were already buying and subscribing to the books. Mm-hmm. We were mostly converting. The only people we were truly selling was new law firms and new lawyers or new government agencies. 
ironically, I mean, like one of the biggest deals I did was with the prison and my job was to go in and there was a list of books that they were required by the state to have for the prisoners to have. And I literally went down the list and it was just taking an order. Yeah. And then you could have make an upwards of your saying of 25% on that sale? Yeah. With bonuses. Wow. Okay. Based on that model that you told us, I could see being able to do that. So tell us what it felt like to make that much money by the time you're saying nine months, you had a million dollars in the bank. Yeah. So what I did is I bought my mom a house. I bought my mom a car and I paid off my law loans, paid my taxes, bought a big screen TV for myself. That's important real quick too, is that you paid your taxes. Cause I think a lot of sales guys forget about that part. <laughs> as far as keeping it, honestly, from a broker perspective, you're supposed to keep that, right? And I think a lot of people forget that they're supposed to pay Uncle Sam at the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And I was lucky to have older mentors that told me that. I was so scared. Literally for the first three years of working, I thought it was luck. I had a $25 a day per diem and I'd even save that and eat peanut butter and jelly. I wore the same pair of shoes and suits and I was afraid to spend any money because I literally came from a very scarce environment. You know, I believe people live in three worlds. One world of not enough, a world of just enough, and a world of more than enough. And at that time in my life, I'd always lived in a world of just enough. I really just saved everything with those goals in mind. When I was a young boy and I saw my mom crying because we couldn't fix a car and my mom had sacrificed so much for us, I told myself that when I was older, that I was going to be a millionaire and buy my mom a house and buy my mom a car. And then she would never be unhappy. <laughs> I had a lot to learn. Let's just put it that way. All right. Okay. You bought the stuff in the beginning, but then other than that, those first couple of years, you saved all your money? Yeah, I saved all my money. And then in the third year is when I built my own house. I had acquired some great wealth. So I built a home in Southern California. That's when the buyout occurred with Thompson. And I had a little bit of stock as well. So I bought a home. It's interesting because my family, they thought I was insane for buying a home on the beach for a single 26-year-old, they thought it was crazy that I would buy this beautiful, expensive home. But it actually created a source of revenue because I learned about buying homes. And as a side gig, I decided I'd buy at least one home a year and either flip it or rent it. So you're 26 at this point after you get out of law school? You're yeah. still that young? Okay. So yeah. you went back to back. All right. So take us on that journey from being in Southern Cal now and then being bought out and what you're doing next. Well, very scary being bought out. I didn't know what was going to happen. Thomson Reuters was a UK-based company, very large company. And it ended up, they made me the youngest executive of the sales force. I benefited greatly by training and building a sales force below me through the merger and really getting to understand the business of the internet. I did very well. I did not only well making money with the company because we were still growing and the internet kept growing and more people were converting and using Westlaw. So that was very important and a great source of revenue. But I also kept buying real estate and the market. We were in a recession when I got out of law school and now the real estate was turning. So I had bought my mom her house. I had bought several homes in Southern California, very quickly became a multimillionaire into my late 20s. And then what happened from there? The internet boom happened in the late 90s, and I was heavily recruited by Silicon Valley companies. Anderson Consulting, which later became Accenture, they had done the M&A deal with Thompson and West Publishing. They had hired me. It's a job that I took when I was 29. 
to be a director of a company called EveryPath. I saw the wireless space at its pre-chasm, just like I was involved in the internet. And I got involved in the wireless space with a proxy server company. It's a middleware company that transcoded the internet onto old WAP phones and Palm 7s and Danger phones. None of these exist anymore today. But I quickly learned not only the hardware business, but the application business and the carrier business, all which benefited me later on in my career, still does today because it's a big part of understanding how to monetize content, how to monetize the access to that content and the mediums in which they're distributed. So I went as a director to every path. I built relationships in the Silicon Valley. I was kind of the spokesperson raising money. We raised $169 million with Amarindo, Texas Pacific, all HP VC, Accenture VC, a variety of people literally were writing $10 million checks on the first meeting in the Silicon Valley. So I learned a lot about raising money with that job and built relationships on Sand Hill Road that would be very beneficial and still is today, understanding the inner workings of the Silicon Valley. What year would you say we're around at this point in the time? I was 29, and that would be late 97 into 98, Okay, 1998. So from 1997 to 1998 to all the way to 2010, so that's just when you started the Porch One Marketing and everything was good from there? No, no, no. I'm setting you up for this. Okay, <laughs> That's why. I just want to make sure everyone starts to see where we're at, because it sounds like everything's been so perfect so far. You know, I mean, It really was. Okay. Like, literally, my nickname was Midas, mm -hmm. right? And I had more money than I ever dreamed of. I ended up at 29 getting engaged and married to a girl that I fell in love with when I was nine years old. She hated me. It took me years and years to get her to marry me. <laughs> I didn't date her until after law school. But so I started a family. But I literally, at that time in my life, from the outside and from my limited perspective in life, I lived this Midas life. I had everything I wanted. And if I didn't have it, I could buy it. I was extremely blessed. And then from this point, 97, 98, were you in the story? I want to make sure we hit every point and kind of talk a little bit more about today. Yeah. So now I got approached by Samsung in 1999. They weren't in the phone business. And so they wanted to build their phone business in the United States. They hired me for the world's first smartphone. It was a Windows CE device. It was very chic to have a young CEO. So in 1999, when I was 31 years old, I got hired to be CEO of the world's first smartphone the, called the PC-E phone. We had one best of Comdex, CES. I was on Good Morning America. I was paid a lot of money to be the CEO and build this company. By the time 2001 came, we were the second largest manufacturer of phones in the world. And the job had outgrown me by far. Sarbanes-Oxley had come out and a variety of other things. I used to tell people that I semi-retired, but the truth is now that I'm 50 years old, I was forced out of that job. It was way above my skis. And I always tell people, if you're going to be forced out of a job, be forced out the way I was, which is get paid a lot of money to leave. <laughs> I left there and I literally semi-retired and became an investor. So you still had plenty of money saved up at this time as well? Oh, yeah. I was a multimillionaire. Okay. Where'd you go from there? I guess being quote unquote, like kicked out as a CEO. <laughs> I started investing in technology companies and real estate. I bought a golf course, which became the eighth best golf course in the nation called Poplar Grove. It was Sam Snead's only design course. I knew nothing about golf courses. I bought a ski mountain that Evil Knievel had learned how to jump motorcycles on and had a ski lift on it. And we were developing that in Montana. I built a dream home in Rancho Santa Fe, California with my wife. 
And about that time when we built that home, I remember moving into that house. It was an extraordinary house and lying in bed. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't happy. I was completely empty. It was really difficult. And how old were you? I was at that time 33 years old when I finished the house. You found you weren't happy after having all this money and buying all these things? Yeah. And, and so I started buying different things that didn't make me happy. I bought more things that didn't make me happy. I started surrounding myself with the wrong people and the wrong ideas, not being focused anymore, not living with that consistent, persistent enjoyment of the pursuit of my potential. I really didn't know what my potential was because my whole life, I just wanted to be rich. And now I had enough money to buy whatever I wanted. You know, every property and stock that I owned, the economy was booming, just kept going up and up. I became self-destructive and I really sabotaged my own life. And my wife warned me. I actually had overheard her that to her uncle, who had also known me since I was 10, she said, you know, she was really concerned. I wasn't paying attention. She didn't know what to do. And her uncle said, you know, don't worry. This kid, everything's always gone his way. I can't wait to see what happens with his back against the wall. And sure enough, I got involved in some bad deals and got involved in lawsuits on those deals and uh, let my ego get in the way, which took a lot of my liquid capital. I had over $100 million in real estate thinking in a lot of equity in that real estate and thinking that I could always just leverage against it. The economy and the banks went under. I wanted to go borrow against my assets. And a lot of them didn't have as much equity as they used to have because of the crash. But more importantly, the banks wouldn't let me borrow against my equity I did have because of what was going on with the banks. And so all of a sudden, I found myself bankrupt. And you're saying even before everything fell in value, you still weren't necessarily happy. Was that because you were taking more of a passive role as like an investor and not maybe focused as like a, you weren't like a CEO of a company where you're spending and dedicating a lot of time in your focus? You know, I think it was that I had attached my happiness to outcomes that were not correct outcomes, right? I wanted to be rich. When you attach yourself to an outcome, you find out that it's not the outcome. If you're one of those people that say, oh, when I graduate law school, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I buy my first house, I'll be happy. When I make my first million dollars, I'll be happy. That attachment will never make you happy. What makes you happy is that enjoyment of the pursuit of your potential. And at that time in my life, you know, I was so focused and dedicated to buying my mom a house and to all of the different things I wanted to achieve. I was bored and I had no pursuit of my potential. I couldn't even enjoy the three beautiful daughters that I had. I didn't even have as a perspective to enjoy being the best father I could be. I became very philanthropic and I'd give away money and I'd show off and do idiotic things thinking that I was surrounding myself with the right ideas and the right people. But in essence, I lived a very shallow existence and there was no purpose or fulfillment to what I was doing anymore. You're saying your wife had warned you. What did she see, like the difference that you're saying? Because you're saying you weren't feeling fulfilled, but were there outward signs that she noticed or maybe other people did? Yeah, her biggest thing that she would say, and she actually confronted me and told me she wasn't happy, was that I wasn't paying attention. To her, I was so laser focused on achieving and pursuing my potential that all of a sudden I was just doing things without any passion or inspiration. I was a very inspired person. She basically told me, and this is before I went bankrupt, that I better go back and take stock in who I was and told me that I not only should take stock in who I was, but what I wanted to become. And she saved my life literally by forcing me to do that. And I adored her and I still do. She's an extraordinary person. 
I'm just blessed to have her in my life. But she saved my life because I went back and really analyzed and took stock in who I was and what I wanted to be. I came up with really four big values that I lived by to make all that money and to be happy. And I started living my life within the context of that, those values. And it changed my life back to where I am today. What did you mean by that? Because it seemed like you were working a lot before. So even at that point, it seems like that wouldn't be much of a difference. In your late 20s or early 30s, what was your day-to-day like versus then? I had purpose, right? I still felt like I could make more money. I felt like I wanted to build this big, beautiful house for my wife. I wanted to have these children. I just had a lot more to do. And as I got into my mid-30s into that area, I just felt like I was just doing things. I'd buy properties in places just to go to the places and have fun, whether it was Arizona or Las Vegas. It wasn't purpose-driven. It was more to spin my wheels and keep me busy. And it's interesting because I saw the same thing in Lee Steinberg, who had you know eight first picks in the draft and had sold his baseball practice for $90 million to Asante. After he sold the practice, it was like his heart and soul went out of the business because it was like, no matter what he did, it wasn't anything new or fulfilling. At this point, you're mid-30s and you said you went bankrupt. I don't want to overlook this. Why don't we talk about that a little bit more in depth? What was your net worth at that point? And then to go to bankrupt, because I guess you're at zero. <laughs> yeah, well, just put it this way. My golf course and load was valued at $112 million and I had $12 million into it. That's at my peak. Right. And I had about 33 other properties alone, stocks. So on paper, I was extremely wealthy. And then from there, tell us about being extremely not wealthy. <laughs> I will tell you at that point, if anyone would tell me that I would have to even admit to my wife or my mom that I went bankrupt, it would be to me almost life-taking devastation. Today, to think that you know, I've written best-selling books and stand on stage and branded myself on being a moron and losing all my money is really an achievement of illumination and radical humility. To go through the process of losing everything. The interesting thing for me is a little different than what people think, right? It takes a while to go bankrupt. From the point where my wife told me to take stock in who I was, I started living my life in the right direction, but I had already created the wrong causes in my life. I had surrounded myself with the wrong people and ideas. I, someone had committed fraud on me. I got into an ego-based lawsuit and poured millions of dollars into the lawsuit, taking away my liquidity and time and emotion. And I was just attracting all the wrong things. It took about two years. And the hardest part of my life was two years into my redemption, right? Two years into living my life the right way again is when I actually went bankrupt in 2008. It was really interesting to think because everybody, when I claimed bankruptcy, that's when they were worried, except for me, because I was already living my life with gratitude, empathy. I was already living my life. I was more happy when I was bankrupt than two years previous when I had all that equity and all that money. Yeah, that's what I was kind of worried about because it seemed like you were on top of the world and weren't happy, but at least you had the money. But then when you add on the bankruptcy, but luckily you found a spot in your life where you'd find happiness again. But you keep bringing up that you're kind of like surrounded yourself with the wrong people. Can you dive into that a little bit? So in case we become as wealthy as you at one point, how to avoid that? Yeah, so I started hanging out with people that had nothing to do. So they went to bars and strip clubs and Vegas and gambling and golfing all day and different things that were not productive, were not enjoyable or purposeful or fulfilling. They weren't people who talked about and read the right books and listened to the right things. All the energy that I surrounded myself with 
attracted more of that energy. And I believe that that was the catalyst to me losing everything is I had attracted this unraveling into my own life, which I will tell you today was the best thing that ever happened to me. And even when you attract those people, I mean, were those the people you're hanging out with, were they former CEOs that made a lot of money on board as well? Or it seems like that they must have had money if they were able to do all this stuff too. Yeah, they were. They had owned their own businesses. They had done well in the stock market. They had done well with real estate. And we had a nice group of, I was the youngest one, but a nice group of guys that were self-destructive. And y'all just found each other at the country club? In the neighborhood that I had built my home in, kind of attracted all the same types of people, kind of new wealth, people that didn't know what to do with it and were ego-based, insecure people like myself that weren't necessarily fulfilled or happy and looking to fulfill themselves in the wrong ways. Right. Just trying to look for something else. Like you said, you had hit your pinnacle, you hit your tribe, and then you don't know what else to do at that point. Can you talk to us a little bit more about coming out of bankruptcy and then where you were at that point and what year it was? Because I definitely want to talk a little bit more about you actually being sports one marketing and then also being a sports agent and how you got into that. Yeah. So as I started living by those values in 2006, I was going to go back to work and get a job with a company called TELUS. And I had an international vice president job that was offered to me. And I had about two weeks before I was going to start that job. A friend called me and he had a reality show with Magic Johnson called Showtime. And he wanted me to represent him. And, you know, I told him, hey, look, I took the bar and passed it, but I'm really not a good lawyer or a real lawyer. And my friend who had known me since elementary school, he's like, no, but you're the best negotiator that I know. We're going to be negotiating with Lee Steinberg. I'm like, you mean Jerry Maguire, Lee Steinberg? He's like, yeah. I said, oh my gosh. So I told my wife, hey, I'm going to go up to Newport Beach. I live in Rancho Santa Fe. I'm going to go meet Lee Steinberg and negotiate this deal. She had this weird feeling, she said, when I left. like, don't do anything stupid. And I went up there. I wasn't looking for a job. But within 48 hours of meeting Lee Steinberg and negotiating this deal, he hired me as his chief operating officer. So I became the chief operating officer of Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, the most notable sports agency in the world. Within six months, I was CEO, living my life in the right direction moving forward, although I had to clean up a lot of my past mistakes. And in 2008, I had to claim bankruptcy. Well, let's talk about, you were just saying your friend said you're the best negotiator that he knew. What makes you a good negotiator when can you give us some tactics on being good at that? I believe today I'm one of the world's best negotiators for a different reason than my friend thought I was a great negotiator. My friend thought I was a great negotiator because I could, you know, I hate to tell you this, I could sell, I could oversell, I could back end sell, and I could manipulate and lie and get deals done. Probably those skill sets made me a great sports agent as well. <laughs> but today I negotiate in an entirely different realm, much more successful and better at it. I do it in not a scarce, competitive, manipulative way but I actually do it with abundance. I wake up every morning as a negotiator and ask and pray that 10 people are put in front of me every day that I can help. I look and see how I can be of service and how I can provide value. So when I negotiate, I now negotiate from truth and value. And I challenge myself to provide value to the other person. So negotiation is easy and abundant and everybody gets what they want. Can we talk a little bit more tactical? Because I'm just trying to think, did you read like books on this negotiation? I mean, how did you figure it out? Great question. Yeah, I studied and got trained. So I was blessed when I started at 24 years old with West Publishing that they trained me in solution selling. And then I studied. And what's solution selling? Just so we don't leave anyone behind. 
Solution selling is consultative sales. It's basically a system that allows you to provide benefit by looking at the reasons, the impacts, and the capabilities to provide a quantitative ROI to a client and come to a logical conclusion that should say, can you see any reason you want money to move forward? And Mike Bosworth, an old IBMer, had created this system, and that set me off onto a pursuit to understand sales and negotiations whether it be the Keras negotiation seminars, Zig Ziglar, Mike Bosworth, spin selling was something else that I studied. There's a variety of different things. I became a student of sales the same way because I wasn't that talented in sports. Tony Gwynn, when I was 12 years old, trained me in baseball. He was a famous San Diego Padre baseball player. And what I learned from Tony Gwynn, who's a Hall of Fame, one of the best hitters of all time, next to Ted Williams, is that he studied on an old VCR, a Betamax VCR. He studied baseball all day long. And so when I got involved in sales, I became a student of selling and negotiation. So I gathered as much knowledge. And the one thing that was also different when I was young is I always took on mentorship. I always believe I should have at least three mentors. So I found the best salespeople and negotiators to be my mentor. And one of the differences in my life when I lost everything is I had no one, no mentors anymore. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So, to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. Yeah, because you had no one to look up to, I guess, or talk about those things. And hopefully that's why people are listening now that you're acting kind of like a mentor to them. I think that's important that you found out something that you did like as well, but that you went all in on trying to figure out negotiation. It sounded like between talking to people, maybe reading, I don't know if there's anything else, but like tactically, what did you learn from the sales processes before and what worked and didn't work? Because again, I was just hoping we could get a little bit of more tactical on your negotiation skills. Yeah, I applied what I learned as a litigator to selling. So the way that I gathered information from the client in a consultative manner was to ask open-ended questions. And then what I did, like a litigator, open-ended questions, and then I would narrow down utilizing closed-ended questions until the person actually made the sale for themselves or made the decision for themselves. So it would come down to, as I asked the questions, a simple close that said, so from what you told me, not me telling you, but what you told me, can you see any reason you won't want to move forward? And one of the key components or tactical things that I did is I actually would record myself, I'd sell myself in the mirror, I'd continually figure out and strategize 
just like a litigator does when they cross-examine someone, I would create the same cross-examination of a sales call that I would when I was a litigator on moot court in law school. I think that's important that you would practice these tactics as well. You don't really learn them a lot in school. Even I think I took one negotiation course in college, but still it wasn't that much. And when I wanted to learn more about sales, it's like I read like psychology books or, you know, there's there's certain sales books because that's one of the skills they don't teach you. I think that's important what you're saying, just taking the time and effort. If you really want to be good at it, then do something about it. You're not going to be good at it if you don't practice or try to find more knowledge about it. Absolutely. And one of the key lessons, like, for example, you can't find in books is, you know, people buy an emotion for logical reasons. And in order to connect to someone, you need to connect emotionally. If you can do that, it's easy to provide the logical reasons to have that ROI and to build a business case for someone with a strong quantitative analysis. You need to connect to them emotionally. When you started being a sports agent there for a few years, just why don't you walk us through that path? Because it sounds like hopefully you're coming out of bankruptcy. Maybe tell us a little bit, like, did you literally lose everything with the bankruptcy? Everything. I had lost all my properties. Because I wasn't liquid, my assets were not exempt. I was left with no money and my furniture in one car. I had to restart over. And you had three kids? Three daughters at the time, correct. Luckily, my wife stayed with me. It wasn't like I didn't step into a job that was paying well. I did. I had earned that that respect and credibility. I had great earning potential, but it still was devastating to lose everything, mostly because of the disappointment that my wife had in me. That was the hardest part for me is to look my wife in the face and realize I had been accountable for screwing everything up because it was her future as well and our kids' future. And so Lee Steinberg became my new mentor and Warren Moon. I remember my first day of going to work in Newport Center Drive in Newport Beach, and we're in the actual offices that they filmed Jerry Maguire in. And I, here I was, a guy who dreamed about being in sports. All of a sudden, from bankruptcy, I was going through, going bankrupt. Here I was starting this job, and my office was between Warren Moon and Lee Steinberg, the most famous sports agent in the world, and both mentored me. It was a phenomenal. I, I called my wife and even laughing and said, I can't believe they're going to pay me to do this. That's how excited and, and much I loved the opportunity. But she was excited that you'd be bringing home income again, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I mean, were you living in an apartment then? Because financially, how difficult was it? Because that stays on your credit card statements and everything for like seven years. Yeah. And what's the difficulty with dealing with that? So I had to rent a house, right. a tiny house. I literally had to put my furniture in storage because I rented a small house that my furniture wouldn't fit in. I rented a furnished house. My wife and I came up with a plan to save the majority of the money that I was making. I knew how to make money. I've always made money. And I started studying at that time how to maintain your wealth. Unlike most people who are constantly on a quest on how do I generate wealth, I knew that my issue was how do I maintain it. And so I started studying the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and empowered wealth and really reading about how do you maintain and grow your wealth. And I started learning that part of maintaining your wealth was to stay focused on if you're someone with earning potential, stay focused on your potential and enjoy it. And then let your money, meaning when people said, let, let your money work for yourself. I thought that meant investing in things like real estate and stocks and things, but those things took up my time. They took away my focus. And so I started investing and creating a family bank that my family could rely on, which is what the Rockefellers did. And so I started investing my money in very safe annuities, putting my money into a family bank. So for example, my daughter who actually got a scholarship to college, my 19-year-old daughter, 
if she needs money, she can borrow money at no interest with really good terms and all types of different benefits. As long as she lives her life the right way, she can borrow money against the family bank. And the only reason I have her pay it back is so that her children can borrow against the family bank. I want her to be fulfilled and earn her money and pay it back. I don't want to self-entitle her like I did myself by just giving away my wealth. But it was very strategic what my wife and I did, even when we didn't have money, we were preparing ourselves for success. And believe it or not, because I knew how to make money, I actually found opportunities even outside of Lee Steinberg to broker deals. And within a year, I was back to being a millionaire. The difference was I was completely liquid. Yeah, I think it's important. You've mentioned this before in your first sales role. And then now is the ability to focus. I don't know if that came natural or if you do certain things to make sure you're focused. But especially today's age, obviously, with smartphones and whatever, it's so easy to get distracted. But can you talk a little bit more about your focus and how you're able to stay that way? Yeah, focus is extremely important. It's mathematical to me. I studied Wayne Dyer, the power of intention. Intention is focus. What I started realizing was that in your conscious mind, you have 10,000 new thoughts a day. And so you really want to stay focused because those 10,000 new thoughts are inputted into your subconscious. And your subconscious has 40,000 of the same thoughts a day. And they create neural pathways that create efficiencies, effectiveness, and statistical success. And eventually, your subconscious programs your DNA, which is your unconscious. It's a code that each individual person has, and there's a current that runs through that code. And what I learned was that the only way to do and change who you were and attract what you wanted was to have extreme focus, meaning every single day. And let me tell you how the math falls into it, because it's important for people to hear. If I do something every day, the day one, it's X to the first power. Day two, it's X to the second power. Day three, it's X to the third power. Day four, it's X to the fourth power. Day five, if I lose my focus, it has a zero effect to you, meaning it's X to the zero power. You now don't get the accumulative intention. You don't get the accumulative effect. You can't accelerate. So the difference between people like me and the average people is most people, whether it's business, wealth, relationships, health, whatever it is, in their mind, they think they're doing everything they could do. But even if they're just working 28 days a month, and they've zeroed it out three times, they need to get incremental success. But I see 90% of the people that I business coach come to me and say, I don't know why I'm not getting the results. Yeah, because you're zeroing yourself out because you're not focused every day consistently without quit persistently in the enjoyment of the pursuit of your potential. When you're talking about that, can you give an example of how you were focused versus maybe other people wouldn't have been? It's maybe at Sports One Marketing when you were doing that. Maybe even back when you had just graduated college, you're, yeah. you're talking about how you're able to be focused. Could you give us a real world example of like what you saw that you did versus what other people don't do or exactly what the sports one marketing today where you're at versus maybe you see other companies and you're like, this is what I do. This is why I'm good. And this is why they're not as good. So number one, I have a routine. I wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I meditate for 20 minutes. And that meditation gives me a center. It allows me to stay focused. So anytime in my day, I don't react to things. What I do is if things occur that are going to set me in a different direction to lose my focus, I go back to center. That's my first step. Because once I'm at center, nothing seems too big or too small for me. I'm completely focused. So meditation to me was one of the biggest transitions of what I did. One thing I always did, though, was I got alignment first, which gave me focus. Then I took action, and then I prepared for adjustment. I also am a student of my calendar. When I say that, that doesn't mean I look at my calendar. I study my calendar. I find so many people 
they go through a day and they'll miss doing the most important things because they're not a student of their calendar. And I know people listening are going to say, you know, how many times have you done this? You've got a whole day and go, oh my God, I forgot to call so-and-so. And that was the most important call of the day. Sometimes the biggest sale call. And I can't believe how many people do that, including myself when I was young. I always at least have three priorities in my day, utilizing my calendar. And those priorities, I give a minimum amount of minutes every day to be focused in on it. And so it can range anywhere from my health to my family. I actually schedule in my calendar time with my children and with my wife. And that takes priority over anything else. Too many people let the balance of life get away from them because they don't use their calendar. They don't prioritize their calendar. They don't stay focused every day on the things going on in their calendar. And that's what allows you to attract anything that you want rapidly and accurately into your life. What time do you go to bed? Curious if you're waking up at four. Yeah. So normally I sleep by 11 p.m. at the latest. I mean, I do that whether I'm on the East Coast. So on the East Coast, it'll be 2 a.m. and I wake up at 7 a.m. here on the East Coast when I'm traveling. But I pass out. So I'm not satisfied or fulfilled. I don't go to bed. I literally go until I pass out. So if I'm sitting reading to my son, I may pass out reading to him, or I may pass out talking to my wife, or even on the phone sometimes at night. And that could range any time between 9.30 and 11. I pass out. I run out of energy. And then when I pass out, I then lie in bed, or sometimes I'm already in bed and it just takes five seconds for me to pass out because I know I can barely get my clothes off. Are there any other tips? Because I think this is important, like the routines and whatever you've seen now that's made you successful. Beyond being a student in your calendar, you also want to be a student of sleep. So what I do may not be best for you, but I actually went and got studied with 52 nodes on me, uh, sleep deprivation center to make sure that I was getting really good sleep and understanding how that works. I studied the environment of sleep to make sure most people don't realize you spend a third of your life working, a third of your life with your family and friends, and a third of your life sleep. Most people don't take any time to get better at sleep. But a third of your life, and it may be the most important time, believe it or not, if you understand the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious, how important sleep is. They don't spend any time practicing or studying sleep. Beyond that, one of the other things is mentorship and priority allow you to leverage situational knowledge and understanding what's important What's urgent may not be important. So many people get distracted by urgent things. You know, oh my God, somebody will call you and it's such an urgent thing, but it has no importance in your life. Meanwhile, you've just got distracted and out of focus, inefficient in what you're doing, and you didn't do what was important. So I consistently have my lists in importance and I prioritize it by what's important. And you just have that written down every day? Uh, yeah, I write it down. And like I said, I have my calendar printed out on my phone and on my computer and I study it all day long and then always have my priority list available as well, including how many minutes a day I'm going to spend on each of the priorities of what's important. One quick one too. I, I have a 520 rule, which is my goal of every phone call is to keep it to five minutes and every meeting I try to keep it to 20 minutes. Those are great rules. Those, those little tactics. And after that, then it's just rambling on about nothing, I assume. You're not focused in your meeting if you don't do that. And then all of a sudden you're two hours into something and you could have been done in five minutes. How about personally, are you like ever in the inbox or whatever, like technology wise, how do you stay focused? Yeah. So inbox is clean at all times. I have a foldering system that allows me to review at the end of the day so I can buy topic, look and see whether it's a TV show or accounting or certain people that work for me or the hall of fame or whatever it may be. I can jump into a folder 
review it and see how I did during the day, what I need to do tomorrow, and then create the calendar list for the next day. Before we uh, sign off, I was trying to think if you have any other little tips or tactics, especially these last 10 or 15 minutes were really important. People want to change their lives. These are the, like the tactical things that you're doing that's made you successful. So is there anything else that you can think of that might be able to help an entrepreneur who's listening or someone who just wants to grow in their job? Yeah, it's the idea of value. Before you try to sell or negotiate or do anything that you're doing, you need to convince yourself and prove to yourself that you have what I call it's a 120 value. I don't get into a situation unless I feel like I'm giving $100 and asking for $20 back. And so I put myself into an imaginary state that my job all day long is to hand out $100 bills and ask for 20 back. Anything that I'm doing in business or for philanthropy or for my family, I want to carry an energy and confidence that, hey, why won't you do this? Because all I'm doing is asking you to take $100 and all I'm asking is for $20 back. If you're not in that mental state and you don't carry that energy, you're not ready to sell. Awesome. We definitely appreciate the last tactics and your story overall. I mean, I think that's really important that all of us are going to go through ups and downs in life in that pursuit of happiness, trying to figure out how to actually make yourself happy. And it's not always money, even though it's called millionaire interviews. We kind of focus on that to give yourself freedom, but you have the ability to do that by making money and learning from entrepreneurs from you. Hopefully we're doing that. Thank you. I appreciate it and would be happy to help anyone that reaches out. Yeah. If someone did want to reach out and say, thanks for doing the interview, what would be the best way for them to reach you? They can reach me at David Meltzer and, uh, or just go to DaveMeltzer.com. And at Dave Meltzer, you're saying on like Twitter? Yeah, Instagram. Instagram too? Okay. Well, thank you again for taking the time. We know you're traveling and definitely appreciate you doing it on short notice and working with us. So thank you again for uh, doing the interview. Thank you so much. Let me know how I can be of service. If you enjoyed this interview with Dave Meltzer, then go subscribe to his podcast. It's called The Playbook. He interviews entrepreneurial athletes such as Danica Patrick, Ryan Leaf, and Meta World Peace. As usual, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews. If you'd like to support our show, then please share the podcast with someone else. I mean, I'm just a lonely, sad little boy in Jacksonville, Florida, competing against those big public-funded networks in New York and L.A. So help this lonely boy keep this podcast going by sharing it with your friends, family, and loved ones. 